the end of your life, what do you want to be remembered for? How's that for a nice, positive, happy start to a message? But I'm serious. That when the last breath escapes your lips, what do you want to be said at your funeral? Now, I'm going to clue you in. The things that they'll say at your funeral are the things that you were committed to in life. And so if you want to be, you know, known as a loyal spouse, a great parent, maybe a wonderful friend, a hard worker, then you're going to have to commit yourself to those things. At my Aunt Vivian's funeral years ago, uh, she had really been into quilting. And, and the, the church auditorium had been decorated in the balcony with all of her quilts. And so as we're sitting there thinking about her life, you could see her handiwork. She'd been dedicated to quilting. And so sure enough, four or five times during the service, that was mentioned. And so if you're committed to a sports team, if you're committed to a certain hobby, you're really committed to your job, that's the things that are going to come out at your funeral. But I have a, a couple of thoughts, a couple of responses to this. Uh, my first thought is that rarely do we think about the type of legacy that we want to leave behind. I mean, we're usually so wrapped up with the tyranny of the urgent. We're thinking about our schedules, the next thing we're going to eat. We're thinking about school the next day or work project that's coming up. We're thinking about, you know, all these things that fill our life right now, and we rarely give time and attention to the things that will leave a legacy. I, uh, right now, reading a book called God Dreams, and it talks about this very thing, but on a church level. If, in case you haven't noticed, churches are really focused on Sundays, and they seem to come on a really regular, uh, you know, repeat. And so it just can constantly consume you. Every seven days, you've got to do another worship service. And you can get so bogged down in the week to week that churches aren't thinking about who do we want to be 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What kind of legacy do we want to leave 50 years from now from those who are going to be taking this over after us? We do that on an individual level. We get so wrapped up in the here and now that we're just not giving thought to what kind of legacy do I want to leave after I'm gone? But this leads to my second thought. Even if we did give some time and attention into what kind of legacy we wanted to leave behind, oftentimes the kind of legacies that we aim for, they're too small. I mean, a, a lot of us, I, I, trust me, I want you to be a great spouse. I, I want you to be a, a wonderful parent if you have kids. I want you to be a hard worker. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, if, if I'm going to have the privilege of officiating over your funeral, I will be saying incredibly awesome things about you. Like, the longer I pass through Riverwood, the more I get to know you guys, the more in love I, I fall in love with you. And, and it'll be so easy for me to say wonderful things. But I don't think that should be your legacy, just to have nice words said at your funeral. I uh, used to take a monthly spiritual retreat uh, a few years ago. And it was, I was grateful for those times because it was in those monthly retreats that a lot of Riverwood ended up being poured into my heart by God. And I remember one day walking down, I, was, I went out to this like nature preserve county park and I'm walking a trail. And as I'm walking the trail, all of a sudden I see a bench. And, and on the bench is a plaque and it says in loving memory of, and there's a name of a person. And it's kind of a cool idea if you think about it. Like, like to have a bench named after you where people are walking this trail and they can just sit and rest and they can just take in nature and just kind of be refreshed. 
But that's not the first thought that I had. As I'm walking that trail and I'm praying, I see this bench. And all of a sudden, I just begin to utter, God, would you not let me live a life that the whole result is a bench? I think sometimes we would be very happy to just have some nice words said at our funeral and maybe a bench named after us. And I'm here today to call you to a greater legacy. I think if you are hearing my voice right now, God wants to do something great in you and through you. And it's more than just living a life so that people will say nice things about you at your funeral. It's more than living your life so that some building gets named after you or some bench gets named after you. It's living your life that you leave a legacy of people. Peoples whose eternities have been changed because you were committed to the gospel. So Heavenly Father, as we get ready to come into the scriptures, I pray that you'd help each and every person in this room to hear from you and you would help us to hear that you are calling us to be committed to you and a commitment to you means a commitment to this gospel. For a lot of us in this room, God, it means we're going to have to have our courage plucked up and so I pray that you'd speak powerfully to us through your words that you had Paul write to Timothy. And it would encourage each of us today to realize that you are sending us to be a blessing, to preach the word, to be committed to the gospel. And that it would end up making such a difference in this world that it would leave a tremendous legacy behind us. So I'm asking for you to take over this morning and lead your people to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, so if you brought a Bible with you, whether it's a paper copy or digital, go ahead and open it up to 2 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4. If you do not have a, a Bible, feel free to pick one up off the back, uh, given grow table, or totally, if you're a first-time guest with us, use your phone, and uh, you can uh, use a Bible on, on there as well. I also will have the scripture up on the screen for you. As you turn into 2 Timothy, uh, we've been in 2 Timothy the last couple of weeks during this committed series, and we've been in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And what we saw was God was warning Timothy, a pastor, to not allow himself to get gravitated into a commitment to self. That's where we naturally want to go. We end up being committed to ourselves. And we saw this big list in, in 2 Timothy 3 that, that Paul began to warn Timothy about. But then we saw that the, instead of being committed to self, you're to be committed to God. But if you're going to be committed to God, we then saw last week that God is calling you to be committed to your spiritual growth. That God wants to change you. He wants to mold you into the image of Jesus so that you will love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. And one of the tools that God uses to train us in righteousness, to prepare us to be like Jesus, are the scriptures. And so we needed to dedicate ourselves to the word. And the scriptures, they, they're capable to, to teach us, to, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness so that we would be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has for us. But as you get into chapter 4, you start seeing Timothy, I mean Paul telling Timothy one last commitment. And it comes kind of right here in the beginning. So join me. Chapter 4, start in verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now, if you were to skip down to verse 9, you will notice that Paul begins to make a turn in his letter. All right, He, he, he kind of shifts away from teaching and mentoring Timothy to kind of some closure things. Like, you know, hey, certain people have left me. If you'd come to me, bring me these things. And oh, by these 
by the way, these people say hi. And, and so in chapter 9, there's this turn working towards the end. So this is kind of the last words of teaching from Paul to Timothy. But I want you to realize that many scholars believe that this is the last letter that Paul ever wrote, which means that these aren't just some of the last words in the letter. These are some of the last words Paul ever wrote down. You see, Paul knew his end was coming. In just a little bit, we're going to see him talking about the end of his life. He's under house arrest in Rome. At any moment, the Roman soldiers are going to come and they're going to say, it's done, you're over. And they're going to go and they're going to execute him. And that's the end. And so Paul knows the end is coming. And so he's probably taking a little more care with his last words. I remember years ago seeing a cartoon. Anyone know the cartoon Bizarro by Dan Perraro? No? Okay, it, it used to run on our paper. It's still around. I went online and I, I found it. They, he's posting stuff online. And it, trust me, it is a bizarre cartoon. Uh, uh, it's kind of witty. It, it, it's kind of up my alley. Um, but anyway, Bizarro by Perraro. Go look it up. But years ago, there was this cartoon of this old man laying in bed. And all of his families gathered around, and you can see they're distraught. They're crying, and I think I remember like a priest in the background. So you realize this man is on his deathbed. And there's a speech bubble coming from the old man, and the old man says, In June of 1973, I was the top salesman of mattresses. My life is complete. Do you really want your last words to be about some meaningless achievement? Or, or do you want the last words that you ever utter to be about last night's football game? Or, or, or that your last words would be about some gossip from work? Or, or maybe you look over and you see your kid and you say, tuck in your shirt. And that's it. Do you want that to be your last words? No. You want your last words to count. You want these to be meaningful. Paul knows he's getting ready to give his last words. That means we should be leaning in and listening because last words count. Just in case that's not enough weight for you to really lean in and listen to Paul, Paul puts on this big flourish, an introduction to grab a hold of Timothy's attention and ours. Look at it, verse 1. Paul says, I charge you. I charge you. Right, so, so what he's saying there is, hey, it's not like a, oh, hey, by the way, oh, I just thought of something. No, it's like, this is solemn. This is serious. I'm commanding you. I'm compelling you. I charge you. But if that's not enough, he says, in the presence of God. All right, children, you should be afraid when your parents begin to invoke the presence of God. All right, that means they're really serious. All right, you've got to listen up. It means you stop hitting your sibling and you listen up. All right, he's saying in the presence of God, but that's not even enough for Paul. He says in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus. I mean, he invokes the God, the Son, the, the visible image of the invisible God, saying even in the presence of Christ. But even that's not enough. He goes on to begin to describe Jesus. And I find this humorous. Like Paul is writing to a pastor who's preaching to his congregation about Jesus. And yet Paul takes the time to remind him about Jesus who Jesus is. Maybe we should learn something there. I think uh, Jeff was right as he was leading in that song. Sometimes when we hear something, we think, I've got it. No, he's reminding him, here's who Jesus is. We need to hear it repeatedly. He says that Jesus can judge the living and the dead. 
Kids, you probably go to school and sit at the lunch table and you hear your peers uh, judging others. Or you could turn on the, the TV and see the news anchors and, and the, the people they bring on and you see them judging the living. I mean, we, we go to work and you hear people judging others. We're judging the living all the time. But to go and judge the dead, that's power. That's authority. That's Jesus. But even that's not enough for Paul. He continues. He says, and by his appearing. I, I think with those words appearing, Paul is talking about both his first appearing when he came as a baby, you know, we celebrate Christmas, but also I think he's talking about his second appearance when he's going to come again. Because the first time he came, he came as a suffering servant to die on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. But the next time he's going to come is as a conquering king. And why do I think that? Because of the next phrase and his kingdom. Paul is saying, Jesus, who judges the living and the dead, who came once and will come again, and he will usher into his kingdom. I'm saying these words to you in the presence of that being. So not only are these his last words, he's saying, this is so serious, Timothy. I need you to get this. And what is it with all this pomp and circumstance that Paul is trying to get across? It's that first phrase of verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. Now, you would think that Paul, writing to a pastor, it, it makes sense to say the words preach. You know, that, that's what guys like I do. We, we get up and we preach. But remember, what we looked at a couple weeks ago is that these words that Paul is writing to Timothy, a pastor, don't just stop to the role of pastor. Much of this extends to anyone who follows Jesus. And so if you consider yourself a Jesus follower, you've got to realize that these words also pertain to you. You might be saying, but Aaron, I, I don't feel like God calling me to preach. Maybe it would help if you realize that the word there can be translated to herald or to proclaim. It's, it's to announce. You know, uh, it's, it's interesting that Paul uses that idea, herald, proclaim, preach. And he just talked about the appearance of the king. Hey, you know, we live in a nation where we have a president. We don't have a king. But imagine we did. Imagine we lived in a nation where there's this king. And the king announces he's going to come to our town. What do you think we would do? Well, first, we'd probably be trying to get our town to look really, really nice. We'd start trimming the trees. We, we'd sweep our streets. We'd probably mow our grass. Well, we don't really have grass right now. We'd sweep, you know, we'd shovel the sidewalks. You know, we would do anything and everything we could to get our city ready for the coming of the king. I mean, just a couple of summers ago, Waverly hosted the Gentlemen of the Road Tour. Mumford and Sons and a, a lot of bands put on this big music festival. I mean, Waverly went nuts. We were sweeping our streets. We were painting murals on the outside of buildings. We were putting stuff in the windows. We did anything and everything we could to get ready for this big concert. And this was for a bunch of rock stars. Imagine if it's a king. And not only do you get your city ready on the physical sense, you get your city ready on an emotional sense. You would start to announce it. You'd advertise it. You'd put stuff in the newspaper. You'd put posters up in the buildings. I mean, you would start word of mouth, letting everyone know the king is coming. The king is coming. You'd announce, you'd proclaim, you'd herald, you'd preach. And what is it you would preach? The word. You would preach the word that the king is on his way. 
The, the word there that, that Paul uses, it refers to the word of God. What is the message of God? It's, it's the gospel. The, the gospel is that the king came to die in the place of the people so that they could become citizens of the kingdom. And so really to prepare your heart for the coming of the king means to live your life in accordance with the gospel. It's to make the gospel the center of who you are. So it's, a, it's simply to invite people to find and follow Jesus. That's what preaching the word means. And so now, to help Timothy and us know more about how and when to preach this gospel, Paul goes on. He first tells us when to preach. He says, be ready in season and out of season. In season and out of season. In 1999, Leanne and I were living in Denver, Colorado. And uh, one day our doorbell rang and a friend was dropping something off. And all of a sudden she began talking about some event that had happened. And our clueless faces caused her jaw to drop. And she kind of looked at us like, you haven't heard? And she said, it's all over the TV. We had to let her know we didn't own a TV yet. And so she's like, you got to turn on the radio. Because two young men had walked into Columbine High School and shot a bunch of their peers and teachers and tried to just wreak havoc. And so I turned on the radio to try and learn more. And the local rock station, instead of playing Pearl Jam, was playing Amazing Grace. It was a season where the city of Denver was open to the gospel. People began to turn to the church. They began to turn to God. They began to seek solace in these things. They were open to this preaching. There become certain seasons where the gospel becomes in season. We, we saw it in America after 9-11. I, I've seen it after someone loses a loved one. In fact, I just saw it uh, last year. I, I, I've seen it when people go through a divorce. I, I know of an unbeliever who, who just went through a divorce last year. And all of a sudden, he's starting to go to church. He's starting to pursue Jesus. There are certain seasons when people are not just open to the gospel. They actually welcome it. They want to hear it. They invite it into their lives. But notice that Paul doesn't just say to preach it in season when it's kind of cool. It's It's welcome. He says they even preach it out of season. There are times where the culture's heart is hard towards the gospel. They find it offensive. They find it meaningless. They find it laughable. They don't want to hear it. And so they try to push it away. In fact, Paul describes some of these people down in verse 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from, uh, sorry, and turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, Paul says a time is coming. Well, here we are about 2,000 years after he wrote this. And I think there have been multiple times that have come when people have seen the gospel as being out of season. Right now, in our uh, American secular culture, it's kind of okay to be spiritual, but what do they say? I'm spiritual, but not religious. Like, like it's okay to be open to things of the divine, but they don't want to kind of get themselves stuck into one vein, one tribe, one religion. And, and so they, they kind of want to piecemeal things. They, they kind of like a little bit of this over here in Buddhism, and they kind of like respect this about Islam, and they like this about Christianity. And so there's parts of the gospel that they might take. Like, oh, I, I love that they talk about the love of God, and so I'm going to take that and incorporate that, but I really don't like this aspect of it. 
thing is, I, I wish I could just say that that's just secular culture. Unfortunately, some of that thought also filters into the church. There, there are certain tribes within Christianity that have taken the gospel and they don't like certain aspects of it. And so they will twist it and turn it and change it into something else. Like right now on Sunday morning, there are churches where pastors are getting really, really excited to preach about your success. And, and don't get me wrong. I do believe God wants you to be successful. I just think that sometimes God has a different definition of success than we do. Because for them, success is found in how big your bank account is, how, much, uh, uh, how, how many possessions you have, and just how much, how healthy you are. That's success. And so they turn God into a vending machine where if you just merely pray the right prayer, if you just have enough faith and you insert it into the coin slot, God will dispense out exactly what you want. And they forget that God has already given you everything you need. Now, don't, again, don't mishear me. It doesn't mean we can't pray for healing. It doesn't mean we can't pray for, for God to provide. If you're going through a rough time financially, I will join you in praying for you. But we cannot forget that God has already sent a son who died on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And if we have life in Christ, we have everything we truly need. And so God is not there to simply be a servant to us. He's there to welcome us into his presence and let us to serve him and expand his kingdom. They, they take the gospel and, and they, they twist it and get, capture certain aspects of God's character and ignore the rest. There's also other churches that right now are preaching that if you just live a good enough life, you're, you're golden, you're, you're good, you're fine. They're, they're just going to teach you moralism and everything's fine. And what they do is they ignore the fact that the scriptures talk about our sin and that we can't do anything to rescue us from our sin. That's why God had to send Jesus. But they don't talk about the cross. They don't talk about our sin. They don't talk about a sacrifice. They just tell us to go in and kind of be like Jesus. In fact, just uh, recently, I met a gal who described herself to me as a pastor. And as we were talking, she starts quoting all sorts of different Bible verses to me and starts, in a sense, sharing her philosophy of ministry. And in the course of that conversation, she says, yeah, but I don't believe in sin. Right? Kind of taken aback. She says, well, if sin is being separated from God, I just don't believe that a loving God would allow his creation of, of humanity to be separated from him. And so I just, I don't believe in sin. And so what she had done was she had taken the Bible and liked certain verses and parts and would just proclaim those, stand on those. But the parts that would talk about, you know, how we're sinners, she didn't like. She kept quoting this passage from Romans 4, forgetting that just before in Romans 3, it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. She was piecemealing together the kind of religion that she wanted, getting the teacher she wanted to hear who would affirm her in what she believed and what she felt comfortable with, with what her made her feel good. And so I really, really, really wish I could say that the people Paul is describing were these people back in antiquity, but I can't. They are right here in our day and age, which means there are going to be times when you will preach the word, you will share the gospel, and they're not going to want to hear it. It's not going to click with what they believe is right. They will find it offensive, meaningless, laughable, and they're going to reject it. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I don't like having people not like me. I don't like it when people like push me away. So why would Paul be telling Timothy and vicariously me 
to continue to preach the gospel, even when it's out of season, even when they don't want to hear it, because of what it does. Notice the next three words. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. If you heard last week's message, those words might sound a little familiar. They, they bring back to mind some of the things that Paul talked about with the scriptures, which makes sense because as he talked about the scriptures and how they can teach us, rebuke us, you know, correct us, train us in righteousness. Now here he is saying, so you're going to preach the word. You're going to preach the scriptures. You're going to preach the gospel. And the gospel has the power to do that. And, and so he's reminding us that the gospel, it reproves us. Last week we learned that reproof is the exposure of our sin for the purpose of bringing correction. So when you share the gospel with someone, it has the power to expose their sin. Now that, that's uncomfortable, but it isn't just simply to shine a light on it and make them feel embarrassed and bring shame to them. It's to expose it to bring correction. It's for their good. The next word is rebuke. To bring a rebuke means to bring a sharp criticism. Kids, have any of you heard your parents say your name at a higher volume and there's like an edge to it? Yes, you have, all right? Even those of you who have really, really quiet parents, that is a rebuke. Now, usually they give you that rebuke because they love you. What you are doing is not for your good and possibly not for your siblings either. They're trying to bring correction to get you to where it's good for you and it's also safe for your brothers and sisters, all right? That's a rebuke. It's not to shame you and embarrass you in the moment. It's to help get you to where it's healthy. It's better for you. But then notice the third word, exhort. An exhortation is strong encouragement. It's to urge someone. It's basically saying, I know what's good for you. I encourage you. I urge you. Do this. Take this. Follow this. Because it's best for them. This is all done out of love. It isn't to like beat them down. It's to raise them up because they're shackled by their sin. And the gospel has the power to expose that sin, to bring a rebuke so that they can be encouraged to find life in Jesus. That's why you share it, not just in season, but even out of season, because it can change a life. And then notice uh, the next phrase, with complete patience and teaching. Some people hearing this message, before we get to that phrase, would get really, really excited. And they would say, be like, okay, that's it. We got to go and preach the word. And so they would grab a bullhorn, they'd go stand on a street corner, and they'd just start yelling at people. I, I just, this week, was talking with a pastor friend of mine. He pastors a, a Baptist church. And uh, he said that he took a led a missions group to another city, and they walk into the city, and there on some street corners were these three preachers and they're using bullhorns to preach to the crowds and i mean it was just they're yelling at people saying god hates you change your ways god hates what you're doing and my friend he said that he just kind of was like stunned and then they had a sign up and it was the name of their baptist church he's thinking what like i'm a pastor of a baptist church they're making baptists look bad so he went to talk to him he walks up and like what are you doing? They're like, we're preaching the gospel. He's like, no, you're not. All you're doing is you're telling them that God hates them. God loves them. If you believe God loves them, then God hates you too. And they start yelling at him. I am here to tell you guys, that is not how to preach the word. That is not how to share the gospel. That is not what Paul is saying to Timothy. 
He says to do it with complete patience and teaching. Patience has in mind this idea that there is a gentleness. There is a willing to wait. There is a kindness. Now, it's persistent. It's not going to give up, but it's going to keep going. Years ago, I had a, a young adult, when I was a young adult pastor at a church, one of the young adults in our church, he got on this evangelism kick. And he just suddenly had this heart to try to share Christ with all of his coworkers. So he began trying to build these relationships, friendships. And I, honestly, I was, I was really kind of proud of him. And he built this relationship with this one guy. I'll, I'll call him Larry. And, and uh, he began to, to like do lunch with Larry. L- Larry and my friend actually went and joined a bowling league together just so they could hang out more. And the whole entire time, my friend is sharing the gospel with Larry. But then one day, Larry looks at my friend and says, I got a question for you. If I don't become a Christian, will we still be friends? And the young adult from my church looked at Larry and said, probably not. That's not patience. That is treating someone like a project. Paul is saying to Timothy, You teach this gospel in season and out of season because it can change their life, but do it with patience. You be consistent, you be persistent, but it's gentleness, it's love. Did you know that in North America, the average person has to hear the gospel 21 times? I have no idea how they were able to determine that, but I've heard it repeatedly, so I feel confident enough to share it with you. 21 times, which means you might share the gospel. Someone may ask you, so why do you go to church? Why are you part of Riverwood? And you then talk about your faith in Jesus. And they may look at you and think, okay, not for me. You don't know. That might be the 14th time they heard it. They may need to hear it from seven more people. And then suddenly God's going to open their heart and their mind. They'll realize it's all true and they will give their life to Christ. That is why you continue to love people, be with them, be persistent. You speak the gospel, you live the gospel because you don't know. That, that's why Paul says there, that other word, teaching. I, I have a confession to make. Sometimes when I hear something once or I see something once, I, I think I got it. I, I noticed this in my children. I used to give them piano lessons and, and I would teach them something. And they'd be like, okay, I got it. I'm good. And I'd be like, no, 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 you don't understand yet. And anytime I'd start saying that, I feel like God's pointing the finger right back at me saying, yeah, Aaron, you don't understand yet. Just because you read it once doesn't mean you got it. How, how many of you that you see a movie a second time and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I, I missed that before. Yeah, I see a bunch of heads nod. Or, or you read a book a second time and you're like, oh, oh, I, I get it. Sometimes it takes us hearing it over and over and over repeatedly before it really begins to sink in and it becomes a part of who we are. That's why he's, Paul is saying to Timothy and to us, preach the gospel, preach the word, proclaim it with patience and teaching. Just say it repeatedly over and over to yourself so that you get it, to your family so they understand it, and to others so they can begin to follow it. And so to kind of wrap this up, Paul says this down in verse 5. He says, so as for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. The teachers of Timothy's day, they were always chasing these new ideas, these new doctrines, And they just kind of ran around almost like drunken people. And he's saying the gospel should sober you. It should make you steady. So in other words, what he's saying there is be sober-minded. He's saying think through the gospel. Let it just kind of root you. Think the gospel. Then he says to endure 
suffering. In other words, you're going to preach this gospel sometimes out of season, and people might reject you. They may not want you. They don't want to, they don't like you. You're going to suffer some. And he's saying, endure the suffering. In other words, be rooted in the gospel. In other words, like a tree whose roots go deep into the soil. So when a storm starts blowing up above, it doesn't panic. It's not bending over because it knows its roots are deep. It's solid. It's got it. So endure suffering, be rooted in the gospel. Then he says to do the work of an evangelist. In other words, speak the gospel. I believe that you can live out the gospel, which I think is the next thing. But sometimes we just think, oh, if you just live the gospel, you know, that like this famous supposed uh, quote from St. Augustine that, you know, speak, you know, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. I'm going to tell you, there's, you're going to have to use words. You got to do the work of an evangelist. You need to speak the gospel. And then the last thing, fulfill your ministry. Timothy was called to be a pastor. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have been called to be committed to God. And when you said yes to following Jesus, God put his Holy Spirit in you and he gave you gifts, spiritual gifts. You have talents, you have skills that are to be used for the benefit of the church and to help others. You have a ministry, which means you are to fulfill that ministry. You are to live the gospel. So Paul's kind of wrapping it up. Be sober-minded, think the gospel, endure suffering, be rooted in the gospel, do the work of an evangelist, speak the gospel, and fulfill your ministry. Live the gospel. And it's interesting, as Paul's saying those words, I think it's getting him thinking about his own ministry, his own life. Because it almost sounds like he's starting to hand a baton to Timothy because of what he says next. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. It's quite common for someone as they are getting older and they're getting to the end of their life or, or for someone who's been going through cancer or, or battling some of the illness and they realize, I'm about to breathe my last, that they start thinking about heaven. It, it, that's very, very natural. You know, heaven is going to be an amazing place. I, I think it is going to absolutely blow us away. In, in fact, I think it's so spectacular. I do not feel confident to even begin to try to describe it to you. But there is one thing I do feel pretty confident about saying about heaven. I do not think that we're going to walk on these golden streets, look over, and see a bench with Paul's name on it. Because he says he's going to get a crown of righteousness. A crown. A crown that says, well done, good and faithful servant. You are now finally and fully like Jesus the King Jesus has set a crown upon your head and it is a crown of righteousness that he says you are now fully restored into the image of Jesus. And when you think about Paul, it, it makes sense. I mean, this guy planted churches. He traveled around preaching the gospel. He was tortured for his faith. He ended up being arrested for his faith. He ended up getting shipwrecked because of, the, of his faith. He ends up being uh, under house arrest and eventually executed 
because of his faith. So if anyone deserves a lifetime achievement award in heaven, it's Paul. But did you hear what he said? It's not just him. He finished it by saying, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love that the king appeared? Do you love that the king went to a cross to die your death so that he could hand you the keys to his kingdom? If so, then you will receive a crown of righteousness. A crown that will be placed on your head that says, well done. You are now finally and fully restored into the image of Jesus. Here's the thing. We are not supposed to just wait until that day to become like Christ. We are supposed to take the identity that God already sees us having in heaven and live as if we already have the crown on our head now. It means we are to live in this life loving like Jesus would love, living like Jesus would live, and leaving behind what Jesus left behind. But let me ask you, what did Jesus leave behind? His disciples. Jesus left behind his followers. Which is why I want to call you to a different legacy. One that's more than just nice words said at your funeral or a bench at the park. I want to see you give your life to this gospel. And as you do so, God leaves a legacy of people. Your spouse, your children, your co-workers, your extended family, your neighbors, your service group, the groups you find yourself in. That they, when they stand at your funeral, would not just say nice things about you, which they will. And they're not just going to go and name something after you, which they might. But they're going to say, wasn't just committed to a sports team. She wasn't just committed to quilts. He was committed to Jesus. And it made all the difference in my life. And so I want to give you today a physical reminder that just as God sent Jesus for you, that Jesus now sends you to go be a blessing and to preach the word. And this reminder is a penny. Because a penny in our economy is worth one cent. And I want that to be a reminder to you that you are one cent. That you have been sent into your neighborhood. You've been sent into your workplace. You've been sent into your school. You've been sent to preach the word. And so right now, the ushers are going to pass out pennies. And I invite you to take that penny and put it in your pocket. And every time you reach in to grab your keys or you reach in to grab your phone, oh, there's the penny. I'm one cent. Or tape it on your steering wheel so that as you're driving, as you're going, you're reminded, I'm one cent. Or maybe put it in your cubicle at work. Put it on your computer. Put it somewhere so that you are reminded, God is sending me to be a blessing. He's sending me to preach the gospel, that I would think the gospel, I would be rooted in the gospel, I would speak the gospel, and I would just simply live the gospel. Because this is my ministry that God has asked me to fulfill.
So guys, please go ahead, pass out the, uh, the, the pennies. Kids, if you are a follower of Jesus, I invite you, take a penny as well. You can do the exact same thing. You are one cent. It might be sent into your neighborhood to hang out with your friends. It's being sent into your school. You too can be a blessing. This isn't just for the adults. This is for all of us. But what this means too is we have to have courage. We have to have the courage to not just simply adopt the lifestyle of those around us, but to instead choose to live the life that God calls us to. And so what I'm going to have us do is we're going to pray for a lot of people right now. As part of our 21 days of fasting and prayer, we're going to pray. But the first person I want you to pray for is you. I want you to pray that God would help you to see who you are being sent to and that he would give you the courage to not just simply say the same jokes that your coworkers say or, or to adopt the same kind of lifestyle that these other people around you are doing. But instead, you would go to live the gospel and even speak the gospel to them. You're going to do it with patience, with love, with kindness, but you're called to do it. So would you just take the next 30 seconds to pray for yourself?